Hello and welcome to Navara FM brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's very finest radio station. I am James Butler. Uh, all of us at Navara Media have been involved in and infused by the Corbyn project to varying different degrees. I think it's right to say that all of us regard it as the only viable prospect for the left in the UK at the moment. I think that's still true, uh, however much Brexit really dampens and deadens some of the momentum, uh, no pun intended. So I wanted to use this show today to try and push the discussion of Corbynism, that chimerical thing, uh, beyond Brexit. I'm joined by two of Navarra Media's core team to do just that. Michael Walker, fresh off a very calm and orderly appearance on Andrew Neil's BBC vehicle last night and more regularly to be found as the host of Navarra Media's weekly Tisky Sour, our video breakdown where, unlike here, you can even swear. Uh, I am also joined by our very own Ash Sarkar, who has been <clears throat> a clarion voice of the new left in the media and who uh, is or isn't a member of the Labour Party. Isn't. Still isn't. Well, at some point we may well even rectify that. I just think no one needs that problem. <laughs> well, welcome to you both. Uh, this show, I think, allows us to speak a bit about the state of the project and what its next steps might be. And the key point to me in all of this is uh, that although British politics has been increasingly defined by Brexit since the referendum and especially since the, the triggering of Article 50 and then uh, even more so since the withdrawal agreement returned, uh, for parliamentary ructions, Corbynism isn't and shouldn't be confined to it. I mean, conversations on the political left are, I think, to some degree invariably hogtied by Brexit because Brexit is taken as the predicate of all possible future politics. Uh, and so, th so thoroughly does it condition the political space that everything else is almost in suspension until it's sorted. So, uh, I mean, I guess... The, the the place to start today is to ask, is this really the case? So I think somewhat inevitably, when you're trying to talk about the possibilities of Corbynism besides Brexit, you end up getting pulled into a conversation of what is going to happen with Brexit. What was it intended to be? What is it going to be? And uh, what does that mean for a insurgent, progressive political movement? And I think... One of the things that's often missed in thinking about Brexit is that its relationship to Corbynism is almost always reduced to a question of to what extent does Jeremy secretly want us to leave because of his own Euroscepticism. And as the beautiful, mellifluous Michael Walker so persuasively argued last <laughs> night on BBC's This Week, that's kind of beside the point. I think one of the things that I certainly missed in 2016 is that Brexit, the Brexit vote put political agency at the ballot box on the table. So it was a moment of rupture, of discontinuity, and we're never going to be able to get back to that which came before. And one of the really important things that it did, and I'm trying to think of Ofcom friendly ways of saying this, so forgive me if I'm slow, is that it gave the public a real sense that polls weren't going to dictate how they voted, that 
expert recommendation was not going to dictate how they voted and that there's no need for things to go on as they have done before simply because of, you know, the laws of inertia. And I think that one of the things that we miss is that 2017 might not have happened without 2016, that Mm -hmm. sense of defying expectation. And the other thing that I think the Brexit vote has done um, is put the local back on the table as a site of political meaning and focus. And again, this is something of a change in my position because in 2016, understandably, the only lens through which I could understand what happened was race, immigration, um, imperial nostalgia. And I think all those things are still there. Um, I'm not a Lexeter by any means because I prefer to live in this reality rather than the one that's in my head. Um, ooh. ooh. <laughs> harsh. That, that was harsher than I expected <laughs> as well. I'm, I'm so sorry, but I'm also not. Um, but I think what, what it did was take a arena of politics, a site of action and meaning-making, and say that this wasn't a failure of your imagination to focus on it. And the thing that got me really thinking um, about this um, sense of the local was something I read in uh, Sigmund Bauman's uh, globalization, the human consequences. Because I was WhatsApping James very late last <laughs> night and saying, I found this quote, what do you think about it? Um, and it was this being local in a globalized world is a sign of social deprivation and degradation. The discomforts of localised existence are compounded by the fact that with public spaces removed beyond the reaches of localised life, localities are losing their meaning generating and meaning negotiating capacity. And I think that that's one of the things that Corbynism should be looking quite seriously at is how do you put public spaces, um, arenas for political decision making, discussion and difference back within the reaches of local an everyday life. Mm-hmm. Michael, what do you make of that? Uh, I mean, I agree. My position towards Brexit is I'm kind of glad we voted leave, but I don't mind if it gets stopped. Uh, in the sense that I think the policy of Brexit has nothing to do with Corbynism. I think the moment of Brexit did have something to do with Corbynism. And I think we will leave the EU. I think we'll stay very close to the EU so that nothing that looks anything like Lexit is, is going to be possible. I think we'll stay within the customs union, we'll stay very close to the single market. Uh, we'll, we'll need some sort of concession, which means it's not Brexit in name only, because otherwise people who voted leave won't won't feel their say has been respected. Um, I think the position Corbynism should take is potentially more openly indifferent than it has been up to this point. So I think the problem that we've seen with the Labour Party is they've seen, oh, People voted Brexit. We have to, we can't tell them they're wrong. So we have to sort of take, post facto rationalise why people voted leave. Sort of try and make that a progressive reason and then speak to people and say, we're going to do that. I think they just should have said, look, we would have remained. Uh, There is no deal on the table that's better than remaining in the EU uh, from a sort of technocratic policy level. But we're Democrats and we listen to the result of the referendum. So we have to come up with an outcome that, that respects that. And I think if they were just more open in the fact that, yeah, obviously Remain would be better, 
from a technocratic policy perspective, but we're <laughs> Democrats. And then I think that would allow us to move on because what I'm desperate to do is move on. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and we will now be moving on in the conversation. But just to situate listeners, obviously we've had uh, you know the the Corbyn letter, which indicates a movement you know very clearly towards uh, a very possible soft Brexit. That's been enthusiastically received. Uh, by certain functionaries within the European Union. Nonetheless, several uh, Labour MPs have been cavilling and fetching. Um, Any surprises? Uh, no, not at all. Um, the parliamentary arithmetic remains the same. Um, uh, you know, the polling fluxus goes this way and that. Uh, I mean, it's worth also saying, of course, and just highlighting that Brexit is really the child of the Conservative Party. And something that Will Davies, who's a, a political economist, friend of the show, was saying the other day, that you know, uh, you can sub- you can subtract all these things, you know, deindustrialization, immigration, tabloid press, financial crisis, Corbyn, etc., from the politics of, of of the past decade or so, you can still see a path to Brexit. Remove the Conservative Party from that, and you can't. Um, and I think that that is really quite important. There's a wonderful graph from uh, Ipsos Mori. Uh, who, who have conducted a very long-term uh, 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 polling study on what's important to the electorate at any given time. And you, you basically see you know, some salience of the European Union uh, post-1997, a uh, lot of conflict over the euro, then, some, then a spike in salience over uh, the new accession uh, uh, of the member states. And then you see it basically flatline until uh, Cameron says, you know what, we're going to have a referendum on this. Uh, and then it really spikes and it's continued to be very high since. Now, that's depressing in some ways, right? It's depressing that, that this, this, in some ways, is a confection of the Conservative Party. But it does tell us that it is possible for political leadership to make issues uh, become salient by attaching to them all the kind of freighted importance that Cameron did to European membership. Uh, so to use all the channels of power and to use all the channels of communication to make issues cut through. And for me... There are obviously issues that are uh, of far greater importance and that are easier to do that with than membership of the European Union. There's also one thing that I want to say before hopefully we break out of Westminster a bit in our Mm -hmm. political analysis, which is that both parties are playing a game of chicken. And really it's down to who blinks first because they're both constructed on fault lines. For the Conservative Party, it's Europe and leaving Europe and what that might mean for deregulating the economy, for a transition to a purely services-based economy, um, and essentially uh, a complete kamikaze approach to um, generating growth, right? And that's, that's the sort of fault line that's there. And in the Labour Party, it's finding a way to... St- Dimey the elevation of the left and trying to find an issue which will split the electoral coalition, which is socioeconomically diverse, racially diverse, ideologically diverse, that Corbyn will need to deliver a majority. And both parties are like staring each other dead in the face and saying, right, who's going to blink? Who's going to sneeze? And it would be such a shame if the Labour Party were to blink first. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. I want to talk, uh, I want to zoom out just to the wider political context away from Brexit. Because it strikes me to use 
the Prime Minister's favoured phrase that nothing has changed. And nothing has changed, really. But what is happening in this country worsens. 1.3 million emergency food supplies delivered to those in crisis in the last year, up 13% on the previous year. While recently we saw Tory ministers grinning with a packet of dried pasta at their local food bank, like some latter-day Marie Antoinette, more families are barely coping, parents who starve themselves to feed their children, and yet still half a million children each year will go to school hungry, and those schools are crumbling around their ears. Doctors report the return of rickets. Rickets, which is a bone disease brought on by malnutrition, one of the richest economies in the world. And people walk down their high streets to see betting shops and pawnbrokers if they see anything at all on their way to their jobs at Amazon or Sports Direct warehouses without security or very often a toilet break. Or they climb onto their bike or into their car to earn a pittance in the so-called gig economy and things are worse. Uh, in the world's sixth largest economy, a child born today has nearly one in three chance of being born in poverty. In a classroom of 30 average children, nine will be living in poverty. Pensioners choose between heating their house and eating. Stress, depression, and anxiety spread like a malignance across our society. The rich run away with their cash. Uh, you know, at the top fifth of the country take 40% of its income. They pass their wealth through housing, through trusts to their children while starving the treasury at the very rich. Uh, the very top, the rich feel utterly unthreatened by the current government. Uh, more numbers, uh, 14 million people live in poverty, 4 million, 4 million uh, more than 50% below the poverty line. One and a half million destitute and unable to afford even the very basics. More than 500 children's centres closed. More than 340 libraries closed and 8,000 library jobs lost. The government has gutted the ability of local councils to provide anything uh, <laughs> but emergency services, if at all that. Uh, at least 28 authorities have closed local welfare funds. Councils report reducing uh, their welfare expenditures by 72.5% between 2013 and 2018. This is Britain. We live poorer, we live more fraught lives, and we die sooner. And when the government is told this, and the reaction from the government benches, from the architects and sponsors of this disaster, the government laughs. That is where we are. That's austerity. It's not an adjustment of the size of the state, uh, of the nature of the welfare settlement. It's this radical form of social re-engineering, and it's one that must be met by as radical a project. So that's what we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, and I think one of the things that has been striking in tracking the electoral responses to austerity over the course of the past decades, look, you, you, you do have various rises. You have rises in, in green votes, particularly in, in local authorities. You have the rise of the SNP in Scotland. You have Sinn Féin votes uh, in, in the north of Ireland. I was going to say, I didn't think they were standing in Palmer's Green. <laughs> um, but it does strike me that there is, there is you, know, you know, a widening sense of the desubordination of, of part of the country to kind of Westminster consensus. Um, and one of the things that Corbynism hasn't done enough is talk about that question of both the, the national makeup of the United Kingdom, uh, but also the, the regional questions in England as well. Um, so I guess my, my, my question to start with is, is, we know all these things to be true. What more can be done to make them cut through? 
I mean, I think that there is power in storytelling. And one of the great thing uh, things about the recent PPBs have been... This they, is party political broadcasts, the little shows that go out on social media and TV. Um, is that uh, they decentered politicians. Um, they held a mirror up to society um, and they were able to tell a story of austerity in decline without it one being that was fundamentally melancholic and so there was this message of hope and in watching those PPBs and the Our Town one which came out just after Labour Party conference I showed to my master's students in Amsterdam and we went through it kind of shot by shot is that it constructed a very powerful sense of us and who the we are so outside of London um, peripheral to the main arena in which politics take place diverse um, essentially dignified Mm. and it was patriotic without ever having to veer towards red white and blue the military or really a mention of you know britain as britain Mm -hmm. um and that was very very effective now the challenge will be how do you take such an approach in addressing specific policy areas so not just trying to paint out a sense of us and the ideal electoral coalition really Um, But how do you take all those values, all those moods and apply them to shifting the dial on something like immigration Mm -hmm. or creating a sense that climate change is urgent and will need drastic state intervention into the structuring of our economy? I think that those things are possible and I would like to see those things done. And I think attendant to telling that story What's necessary is that Labour starts picking good fights. I think you can judge yourself by the quality of your enemies, which is why Michael Walker makes me feel so bad about myself. Um, <laughs> I don't even get that. Is that a diss? <laughs> it was a diss. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> we apologise for, for, for that. Sorry. Uh, obviously, anyone who's offended, I, I am profoundly sorry. Uh, go on. Um, <laughs> Just put the ball gag back in your mouth, Michael. (laughs) Apologies. Um, Is that judge yourself by the quality of your enemies. So, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been very, very good at this. Um, She had a bit of help from Fox News, who put her policy platform Mm. up on a big screen and it went viral because everyone looked at a 70% uh, you know, top rate of tax, they looked at abolishing ICE, they looked at Green New Deal and they went, yeah, sick. And the other thing that she's been able to do is spook a billionaire into running for president. Mm. A man who is so absurd that he thinks that if your intersectionality doesn't include the billionaire class, sorry, people of means, (laughs) then it is BS. And Labour needs more of those fights. Mm-mm-mm. Michael, what do you make of this? So, so I mean, the Corbyn project emerged, I think, from uh, this, this deep dissatisfaction with the party's approach to austerity, nothing more symbolic of that than the abstaining on the welfare 
bill uh, under Harriet Harman's interim leadership. Um, and it articulated itself around that, and it did so very, very successfully. Um, where do you think it's gotten to in making that kind of the common sense of both the party and of politics more widely? I think they won that battle, really. I mean, in terms of, if you think about the last general election, the idea that a state has to balance its budget as if it were a household has, has basically gone out the window. Um, I mean, maybe that's slightly overstating it, but compared to 2015, it's gone <laughs> out of the window. I think where we've got stuck, as it were, is that the Labour leadership hasn't explained to the membership why they've made a decision not to have a fight about Brexit in the same way they were willing to have a fight about austerity. So I think there's... I think questions of what counts as leadership comes into this as well. So I think lots of people look at them on, on Brexit. And I, th I think we have to come back to Brexit because all of Labour's problems at the moment, I think, are basically tied to the fact that they're stuck in a political environment in which that's the only thing they can talk about. And I think people look at Labour and they say, leadership is saying what you believe in and fighting for it, whatever the political costs. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think leadership is choosing what battles to pick. And I think what potentially Corbyn hasn't done enough of or what the Labour leadership haven't done enough of is explain to their base why they're not going to have a fight about whether or not we remain in the EU or whether or not we have some sort of soft Brexit where we participate in many of the different institutions of the EU, but we're not, we're not quite in it. I think if they'd explained that to the base, then they potentially would have been able to move on. But at the moment, what you have is every time Corbyn talks about the economy or any time any of the front bench talk about schools or, or any of the other issues that we care about, people quite almost reasonably say, but what about Brexit? And they say, but what about Brexit? Because that, that question's never really been answered because the answer is, I mean, there is an answer. What about Brexit? Well, Brexit is people voted for it. Uh, we're going to go through with that because we think that democracy is more important than anything else. When they say, oh, but it's going to cost 0.5% points on growth for the next 20 years you say well look a big part of being a socialist is you think that democracy trumps the economy you think democracy trumps growth so i think if, if they'd made that clearer if they'd explained to the base why we're not having that fight about brexit we would have had an easier time moving on to having a fight about other things uh, but we haven't been able to do that for the last two years which has been a shame really I mean, it's interesting that you make that point about, the, you know, socialism subordinates the economy to democracy. Is that it's then hard to make that argument when you're also at the same time trying to hold the line against a no deal Brexit, which polling is showing of the options that are being floated as the most popular with the public. And I think that there are several reasons for that. I think it's because no deal is the only option that you don't have to explain. Ronald Reagan said, mm -hmm. uh, when you're explaining, you're losing. And I think that's very, very true. Uh, the other thing is that point about agency, which is when you've imagined that politics for decades is just a door slamming in your face. It's just someone saying, no, you can't have that. This is not possible. No. To be able to say, well, nah, F you. Mm -hmm. We're going for it. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to dive uh, head first into the abyss. Um, I think that's a powerful mood. And I think the the third thing is that what no deal is and what it will look like, what that means for the economy, that it is not an event 
that it is a process and you will still have to keep banging your head up against the EU for years to come in the future hasn't been thoroughly Mm -hmm. fleshed out. So it's hard, I think, to hold those two things at once in terms of the subordination of the economy to democracy when, you know, there's no deal. Um, You know, it's like the wolf at your door that you're having to keep at bay. I mean, I don't think the tension is that difficult, to be honest. I mean, I mean, there's a there's a thing about Brexit in itself, which is that there was a vote and leave won. You know, that, that's that's just a fact. You know, people can look back at it and say, oh, some people wanted to leave the customs union, some people wanted to single leave the single market. But the only thing Russia? the only thing we have to incorporate as an absolute is that leave won. So we've got to leave. It can, you know, that vote didn't tell us anything other than that. But I think we have to take that fact seriously. In terms of leaving with a no deal, that doesn't have a democratic mandate. And the Labour leadership, I think, are quite correct to say that would be disastrous. Um, and it would be, it, it's its not a case of, no deal wouldn't be democracy subordinating the economy because no deal isn't democratic. It doesn't have a mandate. No one's voted for it. Well, some people might have voted for it, but it hasn't won in an election. But that's the, that's the problem. And one of the reasons why the Leave campaign was so effective is that they were light on detail. And that's because they looked at the mistakes made by Alex Salmond's SNP during the independence referendum. They put a fairly well fleshed out offer on the table, torn apart in the detail. And that means that, you know, the architects of the Leave vote were saying, not me, Gov. So it's very difficult to say what there is a democratic mandate for other than the fact of leaving. Personally, I'm, I'm with you, is that I think that... Um, the symbolic act of leaving whilst having enough close regulatory alignment to the EU in order to um, mitigate against economic disruption fulfills that mandate. And I think when you have that alongside a transformative economic policy, um, you know, represented by Corbynism, that that's enough. But that's an uphill struggle. And I think that it's important to sort of sequence that argument and make right. each part legible to the public. So, so yeah, I mean, and, and not, again, we're getting stuck down in Brexit byway here, which I think mm. is, you know, telling. And I think it's, I think it's important. I mean, just to come to that, um, you know, and, and actually also we've been talking, I think, quite a lot about the party leadership. And what we haven't talked about actually is the base, which, which in some ways is actually, you know, more important. I'm, I'm thinking here in terms also of, uh, you know, activists, uh, you know, within and also connected to the Labour Party. But look, so so the, the, this movement that originated as this kind of insurgent force within the parliamentary, within the the, the wider Labour Party, uh, and one within the PLP, faced some difficult moments within, uh, you know, in, in terms of consolidating that. Um, it, it seems to me that it has had these various goals and emphases throughout. When, you know, it has you know democratising the party that goes from CLPs and conference, you know, uh, writing what was wrong about Blairism, and that includes the repeal of trade union legislation, committing to that, you know, and more widely recommitting the party to socialism, uh, articulating a new foreign policy doctrine. I think it was significant um, after the Manchester. Bombing, um, Corbyn's speech on that I think is an exemplary piece of uh, you know changing the conversation, uh, ending austerity of course and remaking the welfare settlement, renationalisation or other forms of public ownership, remaking the British regional settlement and constitutional settlement, including English regions, ending uh, state-led xenophobia and dealing with climate change. These seem to me all things that were or and are part of the goals of the people who. Uh, committed uh, in, in varying degrees to Corbynism in the first place. I wonder what you make of how far these goals are being realised 
within the party? I think it's become abundantly clear that there are certain key areas where a engaged and antagonistic left is going to have to create the space in which the Corbyn project can subsequently move. And I think those areas are immigration, climate change, and also thinking about how the project of municipal socialism will be different in different regions. So the project in Preston is different from what would have to happen in Putney. Mm -hmm. And I know this this sounds like a very basic um, and obvious point, but I think that we're seeing... Um, some of those tensions play out in Harringay at the mm. moment, where you've got a uh, momentum-led council, or at least allegedly momentum-led council. Uh, Joe Ajia um is on the momentum NCG, and yet still we've got community resources like the Latin Village, uh, best empanadas in London. Uh, thoroughly recommend. Um, being shut down and what will take its place is luxury flats and the reason why that is and i don't think that it's happening because um joe agia four or the other council members are secretly right wing it's because it would cost a lot of money to pull out of that contract Mm. now just because it would cost a lot of money will be very very difficult for me that's not a reason not to pull out because I think the symbolism of it is so important. But these are the sort of issues that councils in London will be um, will feel particularly acutely, and we will need to think of ways in which to um, manage those tensions and also have a productive antagonism there from a locally embedded but. Um, nationally effective left yeah i mean there are two things which are a problem here one is is you know symbolic things matter in politics but also you know obviously the the, the repost to it is you can't put a symbol over someone's head mm. you can't house someone with a symbol uh, you, you can't, can't house them with a luxury flat either so, i mean i agree entirely um and that you know obviously there are legal routes i think for councils to pursue including over section 106 commitments and so on and so on um but but i i am sympathetic to to both sides of this and i you know it is difficult conundrum it it highlights a problem which is that you know we talk about the Labour party not being in power but in certain localities it is it's in a form of power uh with its legs being cut out from underneath it by central government uh, now, obviously, this is connected to austerity, but austerity alone, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't excuse every practice of a council. The other problem here is 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 a a habit or an idea or a disposition on the left, which is, I think, you know, frequently uh, visible in in the Labour and and beyond Labour left, which is this sort of uh, heuristic of suspicion um, that, that that inevitably anyone in a position of power is either out for themselves. Or, or necessarily going to betray uh, the the real desires of, of the grassroots. Actually, you know, the problem with political leadership and political office is that uh, actually the kind of people that or the communities that, that one represents uh, have conflicting desires and have uh, complex and, and difficult needs, and they're very very hard to reconcile. I think an element of that suspicion is often true. Um, mm. You look at uh, the history of Southwark Council, for instance. Mm. Uh, this is uh, is very clear. But one of the things that this this does make clear to me is that that in terms of uh, an anti-austerity politics, it's not enough to just talk about rolling back the cars. Um, and so there's sometimes been an emphasis on this, particularly in, in stuff where 
uh, where this stuff has been, you know, has had a very, very clear impact. So you can talk about, you know, the the uh, the Justice Department, for instance. You have a very clear impact of uh, LASPO, the Legal Aid and, and Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Act, has a very, very clear impact on access to justice, on the conduct of the courts, and so on and so on. Um, but nonetheless, it, you know, it, this can seem. To, it seems to me that this can, in effect, become an argument for the return to a status quo ante. Uh, so, you know, just roll things back to the way they were before. And I don't think that's good enough for a left party. I mean, I think one of the things, and I would love to actually chat to Richard Bergen about this, um, fresh, of course, uh, from a victory against the Sun, claiming yes. uh, £30,000 in libel damages. Uh, well done, Richard. And going to fund an internship in his office. Um, is that? Yeah. What are you saying? Oh, yeah. God, that's sick. Um well done, Richard. Um, but one of the things that I would like to ask him actually is what um, Labour's justice policy will look like beyond specific bits of legislation like joint enterprise. I want to know what Labour's offer on, say, the rehabilitative function of prisons is going to be. Um, what about sentencing for nonviolent offences? And I wonder, and I would like to put this question to him directly if I ever got the opportunity, if part of the reason why... Uh, the Labour Party has been relatively quiet on these issues is because it's hard to do populism without a strain of authoritarianism when it comes to the criminal justice system. Interesting. Michael? A number of points. So I suppose in terms of turning, in terms of what people's expectations about what a mass membership in the Labour Party would do versus reality, I think some of the arguments about where's the social movement, you know, like pointing to the Labour Party and saying, where's the social movement, I think can be somewhat... Uh, unrealistic. I, I often don't know what that would mean in, in the concrete sense. I think often people expect that you'd have half a million people who are sort of constantly, well, kind of in meetings, but that's a sort of overly disparaging way of, of talking about it. But, you know, co constantly working to reverse austerity in the here and now in their free time. And I think if, if that could be achieved, that would be good, but I'm not surprised it, it hasn't. Uh, I think a lot of that has to be done in a very organised way, and I think the community organising unit is starting to do that. I think it shouldn't be underestimated, actually, the, the victory it is that Labour now has an incredibly well-funded community organising department. There's been a lot of negative headlines about um, the General Secretary uh, of the Labour Party, Jenny Formby, because we've been spending too much money as a party. Most of that's gone on the community organising department, as far as I can tell, and the failed Labour life. But let's not go into that. <laughs> uh, and, and, the, and the fact that oh that's a... The also, fact that that's whenever a victory, I think of Jenny Formby, I think about um, when I'm cleaning windows, and I know it's awful, but it's just the name <laughs> Formby stuck in my head. Um, the, the fact that that's a victory is, is especially apparent when you compare it to what went before. So when Ed Miliband was leader of the Labour Party, he sort of had as this big idea, you know, I want to get community organising going. And he brought over Arnie Graf, who's a famous American community organiser, and that was sort of supposed to show his commitment to this. Uh, Arnie Graf arrived at Labour HQ. People in other departments felt like he was encroaching on their space and on their authority, so they leaked a story to the press about how he didn't have the correct uh, immigration status. He did. He, he, he because he was only here for six months or something. He didn't need it. Oh my it, god! But... They like twenty one savaged him. Mm. <laughs> exactly. And then and then Ed Miliband, as as we know, was so concerned about being seen as soft on on migration that Arnie Craft got sent back, <laughs> and the whole project was squashed there and then. So so the fact that we now have a huge community organised department, very well staffed, very well funded, I think is is impressive. Uh, in terms of Haringey, um, I think 
I mean, I don't know enough about the numbers to know if there could have been a more uh, creative solution to getting out of that contract and letting that brilliant market stay there. Uh, I'd just say there are some sort of like general arguments that I think I've seen made by the left that are a bit simplistic. I think one is this idea that how are the how are the left now saying that a council has to balance its books? I thought our whole point was that we were against austerity. The the thing is that a council can't just create money via the Bank of England, <laughs> and they can't borrow money for super cheap off the <laughs> off the currency market. So so the argument for the argument against balancing the books at the national level doesn't work at the local level. So y- you are a lot more constrained working in a working in local government than you are in in national government. Uh, I think the other is the idea that maybe we could just tear up the contract and build up so much community support that we'd be that the council would be capable of just breaking the law and, and dealing with the consequences. I don't think that's going to gain majority support mm. in in Harringay. I think if when you're in local government, you do have to be, as one of your major uh, considerations, how you can be responsible, how you can make sure that the needs of your constituents are met. But in this case, it seems like there was a failure of communication or potentially a failure of creativity. Maybe they could have got out of it within the law and without spending uh, vast amounts of money. In terms of when we're going to see the best of the Labour Party again, I think it's clear the time when we saw what it could achieve was the general election. That was one, because there was an election coming up. Obviously, that was that was a big reason for everyone to get out. But it was also that we had some really you know, exciting, interesting things to argue for, that everyone was desperate to go out on the doorstep and say why we should have free tuition fees, why we do need to build millions of council homes, why we should tax the rich and redistribute some wealth. It, it really gave people a purpose. Um, I think you were kind of seeing a similar thing with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in, in the United States, where every week when I go on Twitter, she's opening up a new, really popular issue, <laughs> arguing for it in a very common sense way and sort of inviting people to come with her. And that, that's a way to, to build a movement is to have a message that's attractive that people want to join in with. Yeah, I mean, so I, it's sort of striking to me that that uh, since so since the twenty seventeen general election, a little bit before as well, we've we've seen some pretty pretty good stuff on uh, economic thinking in particular, right? So there, there is, I think, it's reasonable to say, an intellectual infrastructure to economic thinking uh, as far as Corbynism goes. Obviously, there's a kind of the ecology. Of think tanks, there's that very, very good report from the IPPR's Commission on Economic Justice. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that says is, is look, the, the economy needs fundamental reform. It's happened twice before. There was Attlee, there was Thatcher, and there's now, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, it's all, 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 all very obvious, um, and it's obvious because that that argument has been made. I think it, it doesn't seem clear to me where the intellectual infrastructure of the rest of uh, the political program is right. So, uh, you know, there's much less in terms of a, a, you know wider political vision, uh, a, a, and I wonder about why this is, or, or whether I'm just not looking in the right places. I mean, I think that some of the things which were being fleshed out and have kind of been put on the back burner has been due to events largely outside of. The left's control. Kate Ossamore was working on addressing international development from a socialist, anti-racist, and you know, 
little sprinkle in a decolonial perspective. And I would really like to see where that work um, subsequently goes. I think when it comes to a radical social vision and cultural vision, the reason why the uh, Corbynite left is reluctant to go there is because there's a perception that that will take us take us onto that kind of campus culture wars terrain, which the left does very badly at. And I think that we need to be less tentative in that regard, because it's a problem when experimental social thinking is confined to the academy, because students are annoying. I was annoying as a student. I'm still annoying now. Um, but tend to be um, quite despotic whenever they hit on a new idea. Um, same goes for right-wing students. They're actually even weirder than the left-wing ones um, while at uni. Um, and they are also they also tend to be very poorly equipped to deal with the locality in which they find themselves. So there's a sort of tendency to look at things through quite an Americanized lens, particularly when it comes to things um, like race. There have been times where I've seen, you know, university uh, organizing an activism break out of that, but, but really not very often. So I think we need to start thinking up and, and thinking seriously, what are the kinds of political spaces, social spaces, in which that kind of thinking can be done and related to people's mm. everyday lives? Yeah, I mean, so there's something here I just wanted to throw in, maybe, is that, I, you know, I was talking to David Graeber, who was my guest on the show last week, and one of the things that he said is that, look, you know, in terms of political strategy, um, you don't take your enemy on at their weakest point, you go for their strengths. Uh, and it seems to me that one of the things that, that the left should be talking about is freedom. Um, and, and, and key that, you know, to, to anti-austerity messaging, key that to economic messaging. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's one of the, the things that we really will, I think, need to disarm. And there has been some of this creative thinking around the kind of Corbyn project and, and in its kind of high points and when it's feeling uh, more confident and secure about itself, it does kind of, kind of stretch out to, to, to that new vision. Uh, it does seem to me that in, in moments where we feel stressed about polls or where we feel stressed about kind of parliamentary shenanigans, there is a tendency, and it's a long-standing tendency within the Labour Party, uh, to kind of collapse back down into a very narrow focus on uh, electoral base, uh, but also kind of parliamentary manoeuvring. You know, this is one of the things that, that Ralph Miliband starts off his very famous book, Parliamentary Socialism, with his, you know, he says, uh, uh, you know, that, that the Labour Party is, is the most dogmatic of socialist parties. It's dogmatic, not about socialism, but about parliament uh, and, 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 you know, and its vision of, 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 of the state. Um, but, it, you know, I, so, so that's, you know, that's one thing. Uh, it, the one thing I, I guess that, that is already happening, uh, and it's part of a, a wider move internationally, but it has been largely through the, the work of the Labour Party here, and that is of the most concern to me, is fundamentally changing the common sense of what politics is and for and is about in this country. Um, and it, it, oddly, it's something that Danny Finkelstein kind of grasped in, in a recent column uh, you know, and he 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 said in 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 the late seventies, when journalists and intellectuals found themselves reading Hayek, 
because they understood that there was a new sense of politics emerging uh, on the part of the opposition, the then opposition under Thatcher. Now, the establishment has been much slower this time to uh, understand the roots, influences, interests of Corbynism party because I think the establishment tends to understand the right better than it does the left party because there hasn't been a left in Britain in a meaningful sense for some time uh, and partly because the roots of it are more heterodox and heterogeneous. Finkelstein then goes on to say, like, here's this um, document that I've plucked out of um, you know, the annals of some minor communist sect and actually this is secretly what, what, what's really going on here. Um, but so, 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 so that is my question there is what defines the kind of new common sense that we should be uh, making these people uh, take? Well, there are two different ways of defining a new common sense. One is, and this is something that we've been chatting about a lot, is where there's a opinion which is generally held but hasn't been tapped into for a long time. So the uh, key key example when Corbyn did this was around foreign policy after the Manchester Arena arena bombing. Um, Says the thing which everyone says you couldn't possibly say and suddenly polls come out and um, he's uh, vindicated for his position. And then the other thing is... How do we create a new common sense, which is at odds with where public opinion is at the moment, and change uh, the view on something like immigration or change the view on something like policing? And I think that that's the area that Corbynism needs to go. I'll say my controversial Mm. thing about that. um, Well, controversial on on the Navarra Media podcast. So, I mean, I think one reason why that speech worked Mm -hmm. and so to clarify I think you mentioned at the beginning of the show but after after the Manchester arena bombings it was in the middle of a general election everyone's expecting your leader of the opposition of the Labour Party you're seen as weak on terror you have to come out and just play it safe basically what he actually did was he came out and said look uh, you know obviously this is uh, awful but we have to look to Britain's history of intervening in foreign countries and see how that's connected to terrorism at home we also need to invest in 20,000 more police officers, right? So, so he did this. It was a very common sense speech. He said, look, I, I, I get what you, I get you like security. I get you like to have cops. I personally think it's, that's a reasonable position. <laughs> I'm not a police abolitionist. Uh, and because he'd come out saying those two very common sense things, it was very acceptable to people. And it just, just seemed like an ordinary, normal thing to say. And there were many elements of that speech that the left wouldn't have liked. So so they, the, the left were sort of willing to take the whole 20,000 more cops, or let's say the, the far left, I mean, or the sort of used to be anarchist left. There were many, many people there who would have been like, oh, actually that speech was bad because he asked for more cops. But everyone was blown away by the fact that he brought up foreign policy in that context, and that was very brave. And I think there has to be a similar acceptance on the left when it comes to migration and justice so i mean you aren't going to be able to create a common sense around prison abolition i mean i I don't think it's a particularly good idea and i don't think many people do so so i think you have to come out and say look of course really bad people need to go to prison of course xyz but we are organizing our criminal justice system 
in a completely bizarre way because we're wasting loads of resources sending people to prison who have just taken some drugs or just sold some drugs. You know, you you have to look at where your ambitions and your goals can fit with common sense. And that sometimes means giving up on some of your prior commitments or some of what I consider your prior dogmas. But, I mean, I think we agree more than we disagree because I think that it is irresponsible to go in with a demand like open borders without having any idea of how you get there and how you sequence such a demand and how maybe you hold something back um, to make a point which is more palatable right now and one that you can win on. Um, Same when it comes to prison abolition. Those two things are ultimately horizons that I want to move towards. But I know that you can only do that through the implementation, and this is where I differ from you, of non-reformist reforms. So that's where you have to think about changes which seem to fit with the common sense but actually have radically changed something and I think one way in which that could be possible say with immigration and this is an idea that we've talked a lot about before um, in particular uh, James and I is shifting from citizenship to residency Um, so then you start thinking about what it is that people contribute to this country in order to have um, the right to remain here and then you can I think also start fitting it within a populist framework where you start thinking about, well, why should someone be able to just come here because they're rich? Or why is it that someone who was Mm. born here can shift most of their tax Mm. affairs to another country Mm. but still enjoy um, a British passport? And so you start, I think, radically changing what the Home Office is for, um, who is sort of being surveilled or held under suspicion and taking the burden away from <coughs> essentially working class migrants. Yeah, I mean, so so just to, to, to kind of um, uh, maybe think about this from a different perspective, I tend to think about these things through the question of uh, democratisation and that has, you know, two forms, state and economy, uh, and they're obviously interlinked. And there are certain criteria, I think, that need to be met when talking about the way in which you, uh, you know, change uh, the, the the society we have. And, you know, to point out here, I am on the left, I am committed to fundamentally changing the kind of society in which we live. Uh, and but So the institutional questions for me are, are about, you know, how do you think about institutions that are, you know, desirable in terms of uh, increasing democratic participation uh, and egalitarian emancipatory ideals, um, you know, it, to the, the extent to which they are viable as alternatives um, to, to the things that currently exist, i.e. so that they, they, they are harmonious with what we know about how these institutions work uh, and so they don't generate these kind of, uh, kind of weird and perverse uh, incentives. Uh, and there's got to be also uh, you know, the, the, you know, uh, uh, an avenue within them to build in further reform, right? So the, the option to, to allow these things to go further. Um, and, you know, the, the the other part of this is, you know, you look at the current composition of forces and see how those things are achievable here. And so, you know, this then breaks down into questions of democracy, you know, representative, direct, and corporatist, etc. Uh, and we don't have time to go into those here. But one of the things that I think is, you know, or the inspiration behind it that's useful to bring in here is something like participatory budgeting, which obviously the Porto Alegre model is the the very famous one in Brazil, brought in by the Workers' Party, um, you know, that allowed local communities to participate in the way in which budgets were set um, for their communities. And this resulted uh, in in several, um, you know, important things 
you know, shifting in spending to the poorest. Uh, citizen participation being high and sustained, and that form of participation actually drawing in civil society bodies. So very often the people elected to these were people who had positions in their churches as well, or you know, whatever, you know, other similar bodies. Uh, you thicken civil society, so there's a virtuous circle there. Uh, you know, corruption tends to uh, diminish, doesn't disappear entirely, but it diminishes as a result of these processes. And there are also some indications of greater tax compliance by those um, who are, you know, middle class, upper middle class, and so on. Uh, and obviously, we have, you know, you have questions of institutional design there about how, how, you know, local communities feed into the centre and so on. But those, those, that to me is the level in which we should be thinking about thinking. You know, you generate you know, progressive politics, not by imposing these reforms top down, but by building, you know, a thick and, you know, uh, actually empowered uh, uh, civil society. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the economic part of this would be bringing together stuff like, um, you know, patient capital for investment in local communities. You have, you know, Meidner plan stuff, and this is the kind of uh, 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 share levy, um, that, that that has been talked about a bit on the left. It's been talked about a bit by the the Labour Shadow Treasury team. But but basically, what you're seeing here, or what you want here, is a revivit. It's look, it's not the overthrow of capitalism. But it is non-reformist reforms. Yes, I think so. Potentially. <laughs> I mean, I suppose one thing I'd say is that if if, if what you're going to do is is democratic participation, then people on or who've, who've come from the same parts of the left that we've come from we'll have to accept that sometimes people don't want the same things that you yes. want. So I was speaking to a left-wing uh, parliamentary candidate the other day. We were asking what, what comes up on the doorstep all the time. So, you know, she's, this is the left-wing person who's hasn't got a history of thinking that the police are great. She's like, oh, actually, yeah, they all, they all mm. complain about crime and want fully funded yeah. police. And I think we, as the left, if you want to get involved in that kind of participatory process, when you find that that's what people want, you have to take that on board and say, oh, that's interesting. Maybe my dogmas weren't correct. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe your dogmas were correct and maybe you need to have a massive campaign of persuasion so that people change their minds. I think there are many issues where that is the case. But what I'm saying is the left need to be open-minded to these things. But I'm on team campaign of persuasion. But it depends about what, right? I mean, on, I mean, on things like policing and on things like um, immigration, like, on things like climate change. Oh, yeah, totally. Well, I'm just saying, I suppose, persuade... It's a... It's a dynamic process, isn't it? So you're not just listening so that you can work out what's the best way to persuade them to my position that mm -hmm. I think is correct. It's a it's a dynamic process where you're saying, oh, actually, maybe some of the dogmas that I had were were dogmatic. But also that thing you're saying is racist and I'm going to try and persuade you <laughs> differently sure. or just say we're not doing that. It's out. Yeah. Okay. I, but, I, but, sorry. I mean, we have five minutes left. So mm -hmm. I want to, you know, maybe draw out of this. Because one of the things that, that I think you're saying here is that, you know, part of... Uh, building a genuinely renewed democratic, political and economic culture um, is for it to be actually democratic, that there is, you know, that it is capable of responding um, to the needs and desires of the great mass of people. I just want to spend the last five minutes maybe building on that and talking about what you see as the most optimistic reading of the possible future of Corbynism, what it might accomplish I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. The reason why I'm drawn to Corbynism is due to the very economic reductivism that I often claim to deride. Because after a certain amount of time, you look at 
the way society is organised. You look at what's going on in terms of poverty and homelessness and you think, I just want the money force it to be turned on. Mm. And I know that that's not particularly well thought through. I know that's not particularly um, deep or nuanced, but that is my first priority. My second priority is to build political and social institutions which empower people to participate in the decision-making that affects them at every level. One of the things that you saw with the Scottish independence referendum, for instance, was that you would have whole council states discussing the political issue at hand. And the problem with that is that that was temporary. It was because we're in an extraordinary situation, independence referendum, so this is the time you get to discuss this idea in detail and then those structures melt away. I would like to see those structures become permanent and also normalised up and down the country and also for it to have an effect on policy, on decision-making and for it to be the beginning of a dialogue. And the third thing that I think that Corbynism is capable of doing if it gets bolder in certain policy areas is to address the racialization of class composition and to start eroding those structures which mean that if you're a person of colour, you, you are at the mercy of certain probabilities to do with wealth, employment mm -hmm. and um, how you are treated by the state apparatus. So yeah, first, money faucet. Second, conversation. Three, racialization. Michael? Yeah, I agree with all of those things. I mean, I, I want to see, like we saw in 2017 and like we're seeing with Ocasio-Cortez, a society where there are loads and loads of people who are really excited about politics, who feel very optimistic, who feel empowered that they can have a society that isn't as miserable as the one we're currently living in under the Tories. I think ultimately we're going to end up with, if, if Labour win, a government who's uh, implementing progressive social democratic reforms. I think the fact that we have uh, principled leftists as leadership, as, as as Labour leaders, shouldn't make us believe we're going to have a radical leftist policy proposal. I think really the benefit of having principled leftists there is they're not going to buckle uh, at the first uh, difficulty, which even social democratic reforms will, will, will mean you're faced with. For example, Ed Miliband. I think the fact that Diane Abbott will be there not willing to sort of go for the first authoritarian migration or policing policy like uh, New Labour did is is fantastic. I think that's uh, an ideal place, Steve. I was maybe going to talk a bit about something from Keynes in 1942, but maybe I'll leave that for a little Twitter extra later. Uh, thank you both for joining me. Uh, we will doubtless plunge back into the gloom of Brexit as it continues. But I think the message of today is that we need to keep our eyes on that horizon uh, and start moving towards it now. Uh, thank you very much for listening. This has been Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. I have been and will continue to be James Butler. I will be back <laughs> at the same time in the same place next week. Goodbye. Bye. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarra Media can exist only thanks to the generosity of our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navarramedia.com. 
as well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events, as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media, media for a different politics.